This podcast is brought to you by Vinzero. Vinzero pioneers solutions and services to the AEC and manufacturing industries to support net zero targets. Visit vinzero.com to learn more about how organisations design, build and solve through digitalisation. From Vinzero to you, welcome to our Think Future podcast series. Each week we'll share conversations with industry leaders from around the world to find out how they're thinking future. Subscribe to Vinzero Think Future for access to more episodes, interviews and profiles. Dr Kimberly Camras is a sustainability professional and futurist with a PhD in regenerative futures. She has extensive experience in the development and implementation of policy, strategy and programs to achieve positive environmental, social and governance outcomes. Kimberly also specialises in stakeholder engagement, regenerative placemaking and strategic foresight. In her current role as Director Climate Future for the Queensland Department of Environment and Science, Kimberly leads a team delivering on the sustainability commitments made for the Brisbane 2032 Olympic and Paralympic Games. Her team also implements a range of policies, programs and partnerships to drive Queensland's transition to net zero and climate resilience. Kimberly is engaged in strategic foresight and futures work with academic partners globally to drive innovative thinking around regeneration and sustainability, and she joins the conversation today to plant the seeds for a regenerative future. Welcome to the program, Kimberly. Thank you, Anthea. It's lovely to be with you. Kimberly, can you first of all start by telling us a little more about your background and what actually inspired you to this career in sustainability? Absolutely. I've got a little bit of a mixed background, I would say. I knew always that I wanted to be working in a career that was purpose-driven and and focused on achieving sustainability impact, whether that was for the planet or for people or both. And I actually started my career as a, an educator, a teacher in a primary school and uh, a deputy principal for a while. And I really loved that aspect of my career. I think, you know, you learn so much um, as an educator and it's certainly one of the hardest jobs that you can possibly have and the most rewarding. But as I was going through those years teaching, I, I really started to resonate with the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis that the planet is in and started to realize that professionally I wanted to step into that space a lot more. So through a number of false starts and different avenues that I pursued, I ended up studying a Master's of Environment in Sustainability and Social Change. So really looking at how we we use education, behavior change, sociology, um, all those other really wonderful things to engage people in the pursuit of sustainable outcomes. I think there are so many wonderful people out there coming at these issues from a technical um, or a scientific um, hard science perspective. And I was really interested in, in the people side of sustainability. So after that, I ended up working uh, in sustainability in various forms for over a decade before deciding to do a PhD in regenerative futures. So now I've just completed that study and, and I'm currently working as a director the Queensland Government in Climate Futures and Climate Positive Measures for the Brisbane Olympic and Paralympic Games as well. So that sounds really interesting. Let's talk through some of the climate ambitious commitments for the 2032 Olympics and Paralympics. Absolutely. Thank you, Anthea. Yes, it's really amazing to have the Games as a bit of a catalyst to transform climate action in Queensland and and in Australia more broadly. In terms of the, the commitments themselves, they're focused not only on the event, Uh, on the actual hosting of the Olympic and Paralympic Games, which is, of course, really important and will be run on 100% renewable energy, 
obviously using materials that are low carbon and, and circular where possible. But I think perhaps the more critical thing is that there's a whole series of commitments that have been made around using the Olympic and Paralympic Games as a catalyst to transform climate action more broadly for Queensland. So by that, I mean really looking at how we use this opportunity to accelerate our transition towards renewable energy across the state. And also to begin, and this is one of my big focus areas at the moment, to stimulate low-carbon local economies. So it's okay to have all of these commitments about delivering particular um, events and, and particular materials for the events, but unless we start now to build some of those supply chains locally, we won't be able to ensure that Queensland businesses get the opportunities associated with the Games. So one of our big focus areas and certainly one of my big focus areas in my role at the moment is looking at ways that we can assist the existing business community in Queensland to decarbonise, to become more sustainable, to tap into the circular economy where possible, and also where we can start to encourage innovators and startups to assist them in taking some of their innovative approaches to, to a decarbonised future to market. So as you say, it's the ongoing initiatives that come out of these types of programs that are more important. What examples can you give of some of the local innovations you're seeing as a result of the climate positive initiatives? I think that's right. It's really about using this as a catalyst to get broader environmental, social and economic benefits for all uh, of businesses across Queensland. So it's definitely the opportunity to use the event as a bit of a transformative catalyst for Queensland that I agree is, is, is the most exciting opportunity. When it comes to local supply chains and innovations that we're seeing across Queensland, I might use a couple of examples from our recent Low Carbon Accelerator program. So we're seeing a lot of uh, innovators and startups really respond to the need for more data. Uh, we don't actually have necessarily a really solid picture of the current state of all of our supply chains across, across Queensland to understand, you know, what is um, the level of decarbonisation that's required? How far along that journey are they towards being more circular and, and lower waste? So I've seen some really great initiatives when it comes to digital platforms and the use of artificial intelligence to really help both policymakers but also um, organisations and businesses understand their own supply chains and then make more informed choices about how they produce more sustainable outcomes. We're also seeing some really strong innovation when it comes to technology. A recent example that we've been working uh, with is, is a company that's actually developing mobile EV charging stations that use solar carports, if you like, in, in regional areas to actually make sure that that technology can be, can be utilised away from urban centres in regional areas and also, and this is interesting in the context of, of games and other major events, as backup as an alternative to, to diesel generators. So a whole range of different innovations that are coming through. So it sounds like some great initiatives there in terms of the EV charging stations. Are you seeing anything particularly around the built environment space? Yeah, I think there's a big movement across the built environment space nationally when it comes to sustainability and a real recognition from uh, from many sectors that it's not only sound sustainability practice for the environment uh, to decarbonise built infrastructure, but it's also really economically sound. And it's really important as organisations understand the risks, both economic and physical, that are posed by climate change. There are many, many good examples nationally, certainly in Queensland, 
we're seeing some real movement sparked by the commitments made for the for the Olympic and Paralympic Games. Many of the venues and, and villages are targeting world-leading ratings when it comes to sustainability performance, including six-star green stars or the athletes' villages, for example. I think the more, more important thing is always some of the ambitions made for the Games are starting to translate into a broader policy and, and practice when it comes to the built environment more broadly. Um, we're seeing that those levels of commitment um, and levels of ambition are translating into how Queensland government, for example, is procuring goods and services for for its own infrastructure program of work. I think more broadly than that, though, more broadly than what government's doing, and this is something that's really interesting and has been happening for some time nationally. You're seeing collectives of those in the built environment moving together to to progress some of these things themselves. I think a really good example of that is the Better Buildings Partnership out of Sydney. There's a series of, of developers that have come together with the support of the local and state government there and with university um, input to establish a collective that's actually working together to have consistent um, approaches to, to reducing their environmental impact. And when we see collectives like that, both from the private and from the public sector working together, I think we're seeing much more significant impacts, particularly when it comes to the built environment. But when it comes also, I think, just touching on the research I've done recently through my PhD, I think the other trend or the other um, movement that we're seeing is this understanding that we do need to integrate nature into our cities and into our built environment more. Not only helps us reduce the harm uh, from, from construction and operation of buildings, but actually go a bit further and, and create some net positive environmental, but also social and health benefits for communities. So. There's some wonderful examples of that. And I think really that comes down to us really making nature-informed decisions, looking at the natural environment in which those buildings are situated and trying to draw from that to guide the design decisions that we're making. That can result in many different things out there. It can result in precinct-scale approaches to how we utilise water and, and, and develop water recycling systems. And on a more simple level but a really powerful level, it can involve biophilic um, approaches and the integration of nature into the built form, which also reduces urban heat island effect, of course, and is a really positive thing when it comes to people's well-being and enjoyment of a particular space. So certainly we're seeing a move beyond net zero towards regenerative design, and you've just been awarded the Dean Graduate Research Award for the Most Outstanding Thesis at University of Sunshine Coast and had your essay Regenerative Futures, Eight Principles for Thinking and Practice, published in the Journal of Future Studies. So congratulations on both those achievements. Can you elaborate perhaps on the eight principles and provide some further context as to how that plays out for the built environment? Thanks, Anthea. It's certainly an exciting space. And I think the really interesting thing with regenerative thinking is it's really about that movement beyond mitigating further harm to the planet to actually also looking for opportunities where we can address the debt we've accrued ecologically um, through some of our decision making. Of course, that doesn't mean that uh, efforts towards net zero are, are bad, they're really critical, but it's about looking for those opportunities where we can push the envelope even further to look for how we design buildings in a way that creates positive environmental and social impacts and almost gives back if you like. And I think that that's a really powerful shift in, in terms of uh, both thinking and practice. 
there are many different researchers and um, practitioners who have been exploring ideas around regenerative design for decades now. But I think we're at a real tipping point where uh, some of those ideas are being embraced on a larger scale. In terms of regenerative futures, I think that the key uh, focus for me has really been about how can we engage communities to be part of that process as well. Just because a building has a certain feature, it has a green wall or it's part of an integrated water recycling system, doesn't necessarily mean it's regenerative if it's not really suited to the place and the people in which it's situated. So in terms of those eight principles, I just might touch on, on one of them first, if that's okay. The key really, when we're looking at how we drive regenerative communities and how we have a built environment or a built form that supports that, is to initially start by establishing a story of place. And that might sound quite simple, but it's actually really powerful. It's about looking not only at the place from a human perspective and importantly hearing uh, the stories and the history and the needs of the current uh, community that, are, that, are, that reside there, but also looking at its ecological story, looking at what the natural form in that place can tell us and how that can guide decision-making in terms of what we build. I might give an example of that if, um, if, if you don't mind. And I think the example I'd like to give is, is from, from Green Square in Sydney, actually. And really, many of the designers and the architects and the people I spoke to who worked on, on that precinct was through that, those conversations emerged this idea of, of looking at that precinct as a bit of a web and looking at where the interconnections were between the different elements of the precinct, but also where there had to be space that was kind of left untouched, almost you could see that represented in, the, in a visual picture of a web. And so that, that actually really informed how they made decisions as well. The library there, for example, is situated underground in order to allow greater uh, public space and connectivity above ground and through that pre precinct. Obviously, situating a building underground is also going to reduce its heating and cooling requirements as well. And then you have a whole range of other flow-on impacts that, that arise from that design decision. So those eight principles um, go through a whole series of different uh, ways that communities or and planners can, can come together to explore the possibilities of a regenerative future in a way that's contextual to a particular place. And I think that is one of the most critical things. And then identify um, the decisions, the tactics, the, the features, the design methods that are best placed to, to deliver on that. Can these same principles be applied in an urban setting? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the challenge with urban settings is almost that we've got an existing environment that kind of constrains us, you know. Achieving these outcomes in regional greenfield settings is also difficult, don't get me wrong, but in an urban, existing urban environment, we're constrained by the existing streetscape, by the existing built form, also by the expectations of the community who are already there. And of course, that's really valid. So that makes it a lot more complicated. And that's why globally, there are far fewer case studies of regenerative approaches in existing urban environments. It's a really emerging area of research. But it's really important because, as we know, Cities account for a significant degree of the global um, energy consumption, waste production, and that is only set to continue because urbanisation is increasing rapidly. By 2050, it will be the vast majority of the global population living in cities. So what does that mean? It need, means we need to rethink how we approach these existing urban environments that we have. And 
that's really difficult because that requires us to look at not only how we build these structures or, the, or all these precincts, it requires us to consider what needs to remain and, and, and not to be refurbished, but it also requires us to look at policy frameworks and perhaps existing disincentives that are, that are stifling uh, more regenerative approaches to urban environments. So what are some of the policy changes that you think could potentially bridge the gap when it comes to those sorts of principles being embedded for urban areas? I think there are quite a few. I think there are some when it comes to um, both the scale of how we approach these types of development, but also the timings and also the measures that we use to, to determine whether or not those developments or those precincts are, are regenerative or, or successful in that way. So I'll give a couple of examples of that. In my research, I looked at a couple of case study communities in, in urban Sydney, inner Sydney being the, the, one of the most densely populated um, areas in, in Australia. And at the time of some of those developments, there was almost an active disincentive from a policy perspective to explore things like precinct scale water recycling. The pricing structure meant that it was essentially uh, economically disadvantageous for developers to necessarily pursue that because of of the way in which the legislation that set up the water pricing structure was developed. That's since changed in the last couple of years. And I think um, some of these pilot precincts that demonstrated the the possibility associated with this type of infrastructure have helped to achieve that. So I think the first thing there is that there needs to be an understanding of where utility pricing structures, for example, need to be reviewed in a way that enables different approaches to decentralised energy and water, particularly. That's really critical. The way in which we get engaged communities, though, and the way in which um, you know our development framework and, and policy settings can enable that to be a little richer, potentially, and certainly sometimes take more time is really important. I also think that there's a lot to be said for the staging of developments, particularly if we're looking at precinct scale urban renewal. I know one of the successes from some of the case studies I've looked at through my research was a really careful and deliberate staging of which infrastructure was developed first. The fact that there was the community scale infrastructure, the precinct public infrastructure was developed first. So it was there before any of the uh, residential um, urban renewal occurred. And I think some of those decisions are, are really, really important. When it comes to measuring success, that's a tricky one because um, often we make decisions in reality in a in more of a short-term kind of view about you know what is a sustainable outcome or what is an economically sound outcome for, for a particular development. So I think where possible, if we can have mechanisms in place to help us take a longer-term view, that's going to be really critical. And you just talked there a little about water circularity or water recycling. The built environment relies heavily on water usage. What sort of innovations are you seeing in the precincts that you've had exposure to for water usage? I think it's a really good question because, you know, we see a lot of things we talked earlier about integration of nature and, um, you know, biodiversity sense of urban design, for example, into cities. That's really important, but that also relies on water. And we don't want to have another problem, but, uh, you know, we'll create unintended consequences by trying to integrate nature into our cities. So I think that, that water is, is a particularly important focus there and perhaps one that's under-focused on at times. The other thing I'd say just before I give an example that's also really important is that 
um, it's really critical for us to draw from the environment of the place in, in, in which we're at. So, for example, in, in the context of Green Square Precinct in Sydney, you know, that was an area that historically over thousands of years has experienced significant flooding. It's on a flood, it's on a floodplain essentially. And one of the challenges there, particularly after it was over-industrialised as a precinct, was to manage that water flow through the precinct. So they actually used that not only to inform design, but in some ways that was actually the catalyst for them um, renewing this precinct and for the ability to, for different you know, government agencies to come together. So in order to kind of minimise that um, and to, to address that or to use that even to enable regenerative approaches, uh, 2.8 kilometre, I believe it was, trunk chain was actually put in underneath the whole precinct to help avoid some of those flooding implications, but then also to divert water into the recycled uh, water um, infrastructure set up for that whole precinct. So now that water is, is used for non-drinking uses, of course, but also then to feed back into uh, irrigating the public parks and, and the green spaces within that community. So you're kind of seeing that nature-informed design decision having those flow and effects on an ongoing basis for that precinct. And a bit of circularity on top of it. Yes, exactly. Are you looking for a digitalisation and net zero partner to help you achieve your goals? Join the thousands of AEC and manufacturing customers globally who have turned to VinZero to start their journey toward a net zero future. With 32 offices around the world, VinZero can connect you to the right technologies and workflow processes so you can maintain your competitive position and increase profitability. VinZero has an industry expert to help you navigate the best pathway forward wherever you are on your digitalisation and net zero journey. Visit VinZero.com to find out more. So with the precinct design, you mentioned that precincts often don't have the same level of challenges as you do with urban regenerative design. Obviously, the precincts still have some challenges, like you've touched on there with the floodplains. What other challenges typically present when a precinct sets about designing for regeneration? I think urban precincts are almost the most challenging, in fact, and that's because in an urban precinct, if you're looking beyond a single plot of land or a single a building, you're often most likely going to have multiple owners of that space. So when you have multiple owners of the land within a space, that creates additional challenges and additional difficulties in taking a holistic approach to the design and the development or the renewal if it's an existing area of that precinct. So I think that um, multiple land ownership is, is really tricky. And again, in, in the cases of some of the precincts that have done that well in Australia, you know, we've seen a, the long game played really, you know, local and, and state governments over time working towards minimising or acquiring aspects of the land as, the, as they become available to do so with a more longer term view about the potential uses of that community or of that space. Um, so I think that that's one of, one of the key challenges. I think it's also really challenging to work at that scale. You know, it's much easier to look at an individual building. I'm not saying it is easy, but it's much easier to look at an individual building and, and to, to measure and, and manage the resource use of that building. When we're looking at things that are, are broader than a, an individual building, when we're looking at a suburb or a precinct, there's a lot more data sets and there's a lot more 
factors, there's a lot more stakeholders to involve. So I guess it's that complexity that really grows when we're, when we're looking at a, at a precinct scale, which begs the question, I guess, of well, why would you? Why would you approach things from that from a precinct-based perspective? And I think what the research is, is really showing is that it's really what is required if we're going to be able to create efficiency when it comes to resource use and if we are going to be able to decentralise um, energy and water use where possible, but also drive local circular economies, local food system. That has to be done at a bigger than an individual building scale, but also can't be done at a city scale necessarily either. So it's about finding that sweet spot in terms of the scale. Are there any particular examples of community engagement that you feel have been particularly successful in supporting regenerative design principles? Yeah, absolutely. I think, and I'll use another example from the literature, I think that's that's really interesting. And it's actually not from an urban setting. It's from a regional, um, more regional setting in, in Victoria. It's a community called Seacombe West. Essentially, with that community, they actually involved the, the community more broadly in the broader sense of the word in the development of the master plan for that space. But they looked at all of the aspects of regenerative design help work with community to establish, well, what's your vision for a regenerative um, future for this place? What does that mean to you? And how can we help reflect that in some of the design decisions and the master planning for this space? So that's a really wonderful and live example of that community engagement in action. In terms of um, the community engagement uh, work through the precincts that I focused on in, in my PhD, I think there's a couple of factors to that that, that make it successful. I think it's the phases and the duration of community engagement, but also the reflection of what is said back through the use of cultural tools, art, and other things to, to really reflect the story of place back to the community. So I, I think that's when we talk about uh, the longevity and the duration of engagement, we often see community consulted after decisions have already been made about what will happen for a place. And, um, you know, that that is almost too far down the line to really meaningfully integrate their views on what a regenerative future for that place would look like and of course in the context of australia you know from the very start we should we should in my opinion be integrating the first nations owners perspectives very early on in, in the design of anything that is done done for a particular region or precinct so often i think that is missed or, or that is potentially rushed um so i think some really good examples occurring and again, I'll use Sydney as, uh, as the key example here, but through the Jank Street precinct redevelopment and other spaces in Sydney where that time is being taken. I think understanding that throughout any urban renewal process disruption will occur is really critical and having ongoing mechanisms for, for those pieces of feedback, which are not always going to be positive to be integrated and to be heard. I think that's, the, that, that's really critical that that, that that relationship and that dialogue is, is ongoing. And finally, I think understanding that a precinct in a community is not stagnant. You know, the word regeneration denotes this idea of continual growth and evolution and, you know, and makes me picture, uh, you know, forests being planted and, and, and things, and things developing and communities are the same. You know, what was fit for purpose at one time, point in time won't remain so necessarily. So, um, finding ways that particularly local governments continue that that dialogue with community, I think, is is really critical if, if those precincts are actually going to remain sustainable or, in fact, regenerative. 
I think that's also a really good segue just into the work you're doing now for Brisbane for the Olympics and the Paralympics. Obviously, there's a lot of consideration underway in terms of the future use of the places and spaces being designed. What can you share with us about that? Absolutely. I think that's really critical. I mean, in 2018, the International Olympic Committee introduced a new norm agenda. And essentially, um, there's about 118 reforms as part of that that really sought to guide a shift in how the hosting of these events in terms of the Olympic and Paralympic Games are facilitated. Historically, we've seen cities mould themselves, or regions mould themselves to host the Games. And sometimes that results in infrastructure that is fit for purpose for those few weeks, but then remains um, not so much of a legacy benefit um, in ongoing years. So those um, reforms from the perspective of the International Olympic Committee really have aimed to, to flip that, to create a, um, a planning space for the Olympic Paralympic Games where to a degree they can actually fit and benefit the region in which they're being hosted. So in this case, Brisbane, obviously. And that the Games are legacy-led. So legacy is at the forefront of any of the planning decisions made. What does that mean? Well, that means first that a lot of work has had to happen and is currently happening where Queenslanders and Australians and even um, at some of our um, Oceania neighbours are being involved in the process of actually trying to envis- envisage and describe what would be an amazing and sustainable legacy in 2042 and beyond from hosting these games. And that's a really powerful process because we start to understand really deeply what it is that, that people think we can actually catalyse environmentally, socially, economically, health-wise for our communities. So um, there's a lot of work done being done around around that and from that will fall out um, lots of different initiatives and programs I hope that will um, really help us deliver on those things. And on a, on a more immediate and practical level, where possible the use of existing infrastructure or pre-planned infrastructure is, is being prioritised. And any uh, infrastructure that needs to be um, used for the event themselves that's, that's temporary, um, they'll be looking for fully uh, circular, reusable uh, materials there. So zero waste to landfill from from any of those temporary pieces of infrastructure as well. I think it is a shift because it's requiring uh, a bigger picture lens on what can be achieved through the games. And I hope, um, and I'm already seeing, so I'm really confident that this sort of dot on the horizon, as Brisbane 2032 is at the moment, will actually be a, a really wonderful catalyst for some transformative change when it comes to climate action and and, and other sustainability initiatives more broadly. Obviously, it's not all going to be smooth daily, um, but I think if we can keep that that legacy focus at front of mind, we'll achieve some some amazing things. And it definitely does, as you say, require a shift in mindset and thinking. So for the future built environment, what else can be done to encourage that shift in mindset? It's such a great question. And I think that um, it's quite a layered question as well, because we are all trained as sustainability professionals, as engineers, as, as anyone involved in sustainability in the built environment in a certain way. And that's really great. But often we need to kind of keep reflecting on, on those ideas we have and to make sure that we're really open to new possibilities and new ways of thinking about the work we do. I've done a lot of work with 
futurist in this space, looking at how we can bring professionals um, and communities, but in this case, particularly professionals together to really understand what's driving some of the decisions that, that we make in terms of sustainability. And I think when it comes to just things like futures thinking and bringing those perspectives in, people often think it's about predicting the future. And I think it's it's really interesting because it's it's actually not. It's actually utilising some of the skills and tools of strategic foresight to look at what could be possible. What are the different scenarios that that we could work towards for the future, and and what needs to happen if, if we're to get to the one that we prefer. So I've uh, spoken a lot to landscape designers and to architects, and the consistent theme that came through in my research was, and in these words actually, was that we keep. We need to keep fostering an ecological worldview among people working in this space. And quite simply, that just means what I sort of said at the beginning, um, really using nature as one of the ways in which we make decisions, trying to make nature informed decisions around the t- um, of approaches we take to the built environment. So we've talked a lot about the principle of regeneration as a whole and in your eight principle framework, the eighth principle itself is internal regeneration. Can you elaborate on what that means? Absolutely. It's funny when we're speaking about regeneration and regeneration in the urban environment, of course, we're, we're outwardly focused and we're looking at the world around us and, and how cities need to change to enable regenerative futures to enable positive outcomes for the communities and for the environment and of course that's really important but throughout my research I think what kept resonating with me and what has really landed with me over the the years that I've been uh, involved in this regenerative uh, practice is that we also need to do the same for ourselves we also need to commit as practitioners in this space to continually self-regenerate to continuing to learn about how we ourselves can can maintain connections with nature and how we can uh, continually be guided by nature in some decisions that we that we make uh, that continual review and reflection of, of, of our own worldview of our own attitudes and and just assessing whether that in fact is also facilitating uh, regenerative thinking and practice in our professional lives so I think internal regeneration is really interesting anyone working in in this space is generally going to be purpose-driven um, and, and driven by impact. And I think fostering that, appreciating that and really valuing that as part of our professional identity is so important. Well, Kimberly, as we close out today, I need to ask you the question around regenerative future. When you think future about that design principle and that framework, what is it that excites you the most? I think what excites me the most is we are really at the point where we can envision a regenerative future, a future that is positive not only for our planet but for our people, and we have the power to make that happen by the choices we make in the present. I think there's this inclination or this tendency for us to wait for the next big technological fix, the next big AI solution. And whilst those things are important and and will definitely, of course, play a role I truly believe that it, we as people and we as a collective are already in the position to make different positive choices to re- drive a more regenerative future. I'm also really excited about the power of stories and experiences and helping people imagine that. There's a lot of work being done at the moment and I was recently fortunate enough to be involved 
with a, a colleague and friend of mine who has um, developed the Museum of Futures. It's a museum that shows artifacts from two possible different futures, as if you're walking through that museum in, in your 2050. And half of the, the artifacts are from a less desirable future, we could say, and half are representative artifacts that would happen if we made regenerative choices now. And um, I was so fortunate to, to, to um, be involved in the development of one of those artifacts uh, with her and, and, and in that exhibition. And it just reminded me of the power of storytelling and art to really help everyone experience what a regenerative future could look like um, and to plant those seeds of hope in people. And that's what excites me. I think it's really easy to become overwhelmed and disenfranchised by the scale of the challenges that we're facing planetarily. And I think the power of stories and the power of experiences to to bring hope and to open up everyone's minds to, to what is possible is is something that I do cling on to. And what a wonderful futures-based initiative. Where is that museum? So it's run by a futurist called Claire Marshall and, and um, another futurist called Mel Rumble, and they bring in lucky people such as me at various times. But it's an online museum, at, um, and you can find it at Museum of Futures. And it's also often stationed in different buildings around Australia. It's been um, most recently in New South Wales Parliament House. You know, it was also at Griffith University. And in fact, when I was working in, in Sydney, it was down at Barangaroo in the various office buildings there as a means to spark engagement with office workers, essentially. And there's so many examples of similar initiatives like that, that they're experiential in nature. And I think that's so powerful because it's very difficult to close your eyes necessarily and imagine putting yourself in the future but if we can provide experiences for people to start to do that bit by bit I think that's really powerful and back to what we were saying a bit earlier I think when we look at the built environment we can find opportunities perhaps not at the biggest scale of a museum of futures but we can find opportunities to integrate that art or that storytelling in the built form and I think there's a lot to be said for the power of that. There certainly is. And Kimberly, it's most definitely great to have regenerative future practitioners like yourself sharing these stories that demonstrate the importance of making nature-informed decisions in our future. So we thank you very much for coming on the program. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. This podcast was brought to you by VinZero. VinZero helped the AEC and manufacturing industries keep pace with digital change and achieve their technological and sustainability leadership goals. VinZero is a company that cares about creating and building a better world. Together, we are working with industry and environmental experts, providing forums and platforms through our VinZero Think community to create conversations that matter to our future generations. We invite you to join in the conversation and participate in our Think community. Like and subscribe to Think Future to stay up to date with the latest innovations and conversations as we take AEC and manufacturing around the world closer to zero. You can download our podcast at binzero.com or from your favourite podcast platform. From Vinzero Think Future, thanks for listening.